not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery advocate, author, and podcast host. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been chronicling life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety nine years ago. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Now, today we meet Lucy Hall, a woman in successful long-term recovery for more than 30 years. She's the founder of the Mary Hall Freedom House for Women in Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia, the author of Hope Dealer, A Complete Guide from Rehab to Recovery, and the subject of a fantastic documentary called Hope Village. Lucy Hall, welcome to the Bubble Hour. I thank you, Jean, and thank you for that introduction. I'm honored to hang out with you for a little bit, so thank you for having me. Oh, it's so good to be together. I've spent the past couple of days just immersed in your work. And Lucy, wow. you are a woman in motion. So I'm grateful that I caught you for an hour of your time. And <laughs> I, I want to start by having uh, the listeners and myself just get to know you a little more. So please tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Absolutely. My name is Lucy Hall, as you've said, and I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means for me, it's been over 30 years since I've had any minor mood-altering substance. And, and I'm grateful to God to be able to be alive today and to share that. And so when God rescued me, he, he had a plan in mind, which I just know um, in my bottom, you know, it came by way of you have the right to remain silent. And I'm sure people in recovery can relate to that. But nonetheless, that's where my bottom was. But prior to that, I grew up in a small town called Tuckahoe, New York. And it was a village. And it truly was a village in the sense of I'm grateful for my small beginnings because it gave me a sense of community. It gave me a sense of long uh, belonging. It gave me a sense of love. But I also know in that small village, people worked real hard during the week and drank all weekend. And so, you know, I come from a family where I had two brothers who died from drug addiction overdose. And that was back in the 60s and early 70s. And so um, two brothers who overdosed from heroin. So the heroin epidemic has come in ebb and flows. It's been here before. It's back again. And so that's sad, but true. And then uh, my mom died of alcoholism when I was six years old. And as a result of that, you know, life, that's where I was introduced to alcohol. And that's where I was introduced to drugs, but not in a bad way, because nobody took the time to explain to me what was happening. I just knew my mother was gone. And then I just knew two brothers had gone. Nobody ever said, hey, Lucy, they died from addiction. Be careful that you don't do these things. Nobody ever educated me. And so by the age of 15, a cousin of mine was there babysitting while my dad and my stepmom went away. And she was sitting there smoking a joint. And I said, what is that? And she said, you want to try it? And I said, of course. I said, sure. And so that was my first introduction. That was my gateway to addiction. And so not knowing that it was already in my genes and my DNA, I started smoking marijuana and it gave me a freedom from fear. I was a real fearful child growing up. I can remember being afraid 
of the fire trucks, being afraid of the ambulance, those loud sirens and all that kind of stuff always made me fearful. But when I smoked that joint, there was no more fear to be had. Just kind of chilled out and was happy all of a sudden. Everything was happy. And so um, with that, you know, off to the races I went. And so with that, then you get introduced to drinking. Pink Champagne was what we drank back then. And Miller Highlight and all that kind of stuff. And so during my high school years, you smoked marijuana and you drank. And after high school, most people went to college. I kept smoking marijuana and drinking and now snorting cocaine. I just added to my addiction why some people got off and went to college. I didn't do that. I kept on going. And But during high school, I was fortunate. And again, always kind of had a uh, favor in my life. I was fortunate to get a job through a summer job for youth program. And I was introduced to AT&T Long Lines. And I had a great summer job. And the manager fell in love with me, offered me a permanent job. And so I had a great job right out of high school. So I really didn't need to go to college. But little did I know that job was just going to feed an addiction that continued to grow. And as a result of that, you know, of course, eventually I lost the job and, you know, the addiction grew. And and I met my daughter's father during that time. And of course, you know, he introduced me to Manhattan. So here goes this little girl from the village of Tuckahoe down to Manhattan, catching the subway and the trains and all of that stuff. And so I headed downtown uh, New York and the big city. And so when when this little country girl in, the, in a way got to the big city, she went freaking crazy. Um, he introduced me to crack cocaine. And again, life had never been the same. And so, you know, geographical cure, I put in a transfer request to go out to California, went to California uh, with AT&T. And that's when I lost my job because there in California, they were freebasing. And so I started doing that. And it was, again, just crazy. And so um, all the insanity that happened, all the things that happened, I winded up coming back to New York. I called my dad and he came out there and got me and brought me back to New York. And my the progression just continued until one day I started shoplifting to support my habit and I had gotten caught. And, you know, that day when they said you have the right to remain silent, it scared me to death because I just knew that I wasn't the type of person that could go to jail. And so when they said that and that policeman put them handcuffs on me, I cried and I kind of collapsed. And he took the handcuffs off and just said, sit back in the back of the car. I guess he felt so sorry for my pitiful self at that moment. He just says, sit down and just, you know, I was just, again, really scary. I was a scary kid, but believe it or not, I was a big kid. You know, I stand about 5'11", 6 feet. And back then I was about 280 pounds, you know, and so people don't believe that, but I was. And so uh, smoking crack every day, but eating all night long to come down and to recover. And so Therein lied my introduction. When I went to that probation officer for that shoplifting, she said, I need you to go in the bathroom and pee in a cup. And I was like, for what? And she said, I need to know if you do drugs. And so I said, yeah. And that woman looked at me like I was crazy at that moment, Jean, because I guess she was like, nobody ever admits. But I didn't know I was supposed to lie. I really <laughs> didn't know I was supposed to lie. I told her, yeah, like I thought it literally in my world, in my mind, Everybody got out. You know, I didn't, when you grow up in it, 
You don't see a world beyond that where people are functioning and, you know, I just thought everybody did something at some point. So she said, do you want to get help? And I said, what does that mean? So she started making phone calls to treatment programs and I'm listening to her. And by then I had had a, a child by the same guy who introduced me to crack. Um, I had my daughter and I'm sitting in the probation officer's office with my daughter. And, and at that point I said, when she hung up and she had gotten me a bed in this detox, I said, well, I can't go today because I got to make arrangements for my daughter. Now trust me, my dad was one of those people who never put me out because I had had this child. And he knew that if he put me out of his house, that the child was going with me. So they they enabled me in, in a sense. But nonetheless, he was so glad when I came home that day and told him I was going into a program to get help. And I wanted to know if they would keep my daughter Mary. And him and my stepmom were all too happy to do that. They made arrangements to get me to this detox on that Monday. And there my journey began. And I never forget the woman who was my counselor in detox was like Dr. Joyce Brothers, this short little woman who kept pointing her finger up at me because I stood over her. But she would always point up at me to tell me what I needed to do. And she said to me, I'm going to send you upstate New York to a program, a long-term program in Saranac Lake, New York. And again, I didn't know where that was. All I knew is I couldn't go backwards. And so I didn't deny needing to go. But I also remember, I never forget this while I was sitting in that detox, they had an NA meeting. And I never forget the woman who was speaking at that NA meeting said, well, I just want y'all to know by this time next year, maybe one of y'all sitting in this room might get this because the odds are y'all are going to go right back out if you don't continue the journey and continue to go to treatment. And I wanted to jump up in that room that day and say, it's going to be me. I just, there was something down in my soul that knew it was going to be me, that my days of using was over. And um, I went up to Saranac Lake. I stayed there for seven weeks, and it was a long-term program. But they usually kept people for like two, three, four months. And after seven weeks, they told me it was time for me to go. And I cried like a baby again. I was too afraid, too afraid of going. It's like, what do you mean? You just gave me a new life. Now where am I going? They said, you're going to the halfway house in Schenectady, New York. And I was like, okay. And I remember sitting in that chapel the day before I was leaving. And again, St. Joseph's was ran by the San Franciscan Friars up in the boondocks up in Saranac Lake, Adirondack Mountains. And um, I remember sitting in that chapel that day and I just prayed, God, what am I supposed to do? And I could hear the spirit of God say to me, hold on to my changing hand, unchanging hand. And everything will be all right. And I knew then, again, all I had to do was rely on God. And so that's when I, I can say I turned my will and my life over to the care of God. And I left there, went to Schenectady. And I stayed in Schenectady. I did the halfway house. And after that halfway house, you know, life started unfolding. And, and I just began to live life on life's terms, got a good job. Um, you know, some of the people that I was in the halfway house with began to relapse, but I had to get myself away from them and find people who had what I wanted. That was always a key phrase in the rooms for me early on. Uh, meeting makers make it. Those people who keep coming to meetings, they make it and get with the winners, stick with the people who are doing this thing. And those were the things that I did. I, I took the suggestions early on and I wanted to get with people 
who had what I wanted, you know, and I remember that. And so I remember my first sponsor, she was the one who told me, Lucy, we got to, you know, and, and again, I'm an African-American woman. She was a what much older white female. And um, I went to an AA meeting and I chose Judith as my sponsor. And Judith used to say, I love Lucy. And she was the one who taught me how to buy a bra in a pocketbook. Because at that point in my life, I didn't know. She said, Lucy, we need to get you a pocketbook. I said, for what? She said, because every woman needs a pocketbook. I said, but I don't have nothing to put in it. She said, I'm going to show you the things that a woman should have in her pocketbook. And so in the absence of a mother, Judith, you know, and I can say that I looked for mother figures in the rooms. I looked for women who were older than me and could show me and teach me some things. And so Judith was my first sponsor, God rest her soul. And from there, you know, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. She introduced me to my first job in recovery, uh, working in the field. And um, she told me I got laid off from a company, um, uh, Paramount Communications. I was the person who did, uh, that's when you did data entry at night. And they were moving, they were taking the company and moving to the West Coast. And they laid everybody off, but they gave me a check. I wasn't there that long, but people who had been there years were, and stuff. And I was happy. They handed me a check, a severance check. And so I was happy. And I went and told Judith and she said, well, come volunteer over here where she worked at the treatment center. And I did. And within 30 days, they gave me a job um, at night working on the men's unit. And from the men's unit, I went to work on the women's unit and the difference between men and women. Men slept at night. Women had drama at night. Um, <laughs> but I also knew I knew how to work with women. You know, um, with men, they just think differently. With women, I knew what to say because, again, I was a woman in recovery. And so that's really the journey for me, how I got to Georgia, which is where I'm at now and where I started Mary Hall Freedom House. I remember in 1994, my brother was living in Georgia, 1993, I went to visit him. And back then we didn't have the Internet. We had the newspaper. I went to visit him. And I love Georgia. Now, I was upstate New York where snow came up to your waist. And so it was January when I went to visit him. And they were down in Georgia in jackets. And we were in snowmobiles kind of stuff. And so the difference was, oh, I want to do life in a different climate and a different. So when I left there in January, my heart and mind were fixed on, I'm going to figure out how to get to Georgia. And so I started telling my brother, send me the Sunday paper. And he kept sending me the Sunday paper. And I would apply for jobs. And I got a job who moved me to Georgia. Chris Holmes was the name of it, which is now Chris 180. Moved me to Georgia as their living counselor. So off to, to Georgia, I went. And my son's father at the time said he wanted to follow me to Georgia. He wasn't my son's father at that time. But he followed me to Georgia. But nonetheless... Came to Georgia, was working for this company as a living counselor, did that for a year. Then my son's father moved to Georgia and said, let's start our own company. We started a cleaning company, uh, went to work for Mr. D, God rest his soul. Uh, and, and it was interesting because I knew then that I didn't want to clean people's house. That wasn't what I was born to do. I mean, I left that job after about six months, but remained friends with them. And remained part that was like, you know, my first family really in Georgia. 
And so, you know, they, they remain my family even to this day. The kids are grown and everything, but I was part of that family. And, but I didn't want to do that job. So I took a job at a Cascade House, which was a homeless shelter. And I had never worked in a homeless shelter, but while I was in New York, I became a credentialed substance abuse counselor. I got my credentials. I got some more education. And in Georgia, I wanted to do a job at Cascade House, which was a homeless shelter as the human re- as the resource counselor. And my job was to find resources for these homeless women and their children. Well, I had never worked with the homeless population. And back then they had 30 days to get it together. Well, if you got substance abuse, mental health, undereducated, underinsured, underemployed, you cannot get it together in 30 days. And yet, and still, I was to find them the resources to help them. And I always felt like I was on, you know, you know how an escalator going up, but I was coming down, you know, it was, was <laughs> the opposite direction for real. It was so hard. And so I called up Mr. D, the guy who was wealthy that I had worked for. And I called him up and I said, Mr. D, I want to come talk to you and your wife. He said, well, why my wife, Lucy? I said, well, she has the heart and you have the money. And he said, you'd be surprised. And so I went and told him that God had laid it on my heart to open up a program to help these women that I saw down at Cascade House who needed more than 30 days to turn life around. And so he said, Lucy, that was on a Sunday. He said, Lucy, let me show you a business plan. If you write me a business plan telling me how you want to do it, I'll help you. And that Wednesday, I handed him a business plan and he gave me a check for $1,500, which back in 1996 was like $15,000. And so he gave me that check and I got an apartment in Sandy Springs, Georgia for $650. And I started going to detox centers and telling them I was in the halfway house business. So that's how I got to Georgia. That's how Mary Hall was birthed. By the way, Mary Hall turned 24 years old yesterday, June 1st, um, which is amazing. And, you know, fast forward today, Mary Hall Freedom House houses about 250 women, 80 children across seven different types of programs, everything from treatment to homelessness emergency housing, supportive housing, recovery housing, permanent supportive housing, and a plethora of wraparound services from child care center, medical services, employment services, and the like. And so, you know, that's Mary Hall Freedom House. Now, let me also say this. Today, you know, literally, we have changed the name from Mary Hall Freedom House to Mary Hall Freedom Village because we are in seven locations and we do have over 320 people on any given day that we serve. So that's how Mary Hall Freedom House started. That's how it birthed. That's how my recovery journey is. And Jen, that's what I'm sticking to. You are an amazing woman. God is amazing. To him be the glory. Do the work. Now, the movie Hope Village opens with a staggering fact, which is that more than 20 million people a year in the United States seek treatment for substance abuse, but only less than 10% actually get the help that they need. And as you said, when you were telling your story, when, when you were offered the opportunity to go to treatment, you didn't even know that was a thing. You thought people typically died of addiction. I heard you say, and it's in your book, that... Um, uh, when God opened the door and let you out of hell, he told you to go back and snatch others. So talk about, 
talk about the access to treatment and how you're addressing accessibility for women at the Mary Hall Freedom House and Freedom Village. So, so part of why I was so excited when Ricardo Handy, the producer of the movie, approached me about doing this project was because you and I both know that many people out there today do not hear recovery. They hear addiction. All we do is focus in this country on the addiction. We don't hold up recovery. And I want to tell people that recovery works. Like I envy you doing this podcast. Why? Because you got to put it out there. We've got to know that person who is still sick and suffering, that there is a way out. Recovery is possible. This is what recovery looks like. This is how you can get help whether you come to treatment, whether you go to a 12-step meeting, whether you, however you get it, just get it. You don't have to die using. And that's what I want to do. I want to educate the world on recovery, not the addiction. I want to tell the world that recovery works. And so, you know, just making it accessible to people. I always tell a woman, and I've had women come from all different places in this country, and, and even outside of the country. And if they call me, they don't like me to be in my admissions department because if I answer the phone, my thing is always, if you get here, we'll help you. You know, and I truly believe to your point, when God let me out of hell, because addiction is pure hell, hell on earth. And when he let me out of that dark place, he told me now go help others. And so I'm glad to know that my life is symbolic to helping others a day at a time get out of hell. Um, sometimes people think that addiction is fun. There's a misunderstanding that people are using drugs, they're having a good time, and they, they need to just buckle down and sober up and, you know, live life on the straight and narrow. Um, so I'm glad that you remind us that addiction is not fun. <laughs> it's really trying to hold off withdrawal, which feels terrible. And I think there's a quote in your book about oblivion. Do you remember what that is about it's just sustaining a state of oblivion? Absolutely. And you got to keep doing that every day in order to not feel like you said, you know, the pains of coming off of it or the pains of not knowing. Because by the time you spiral down so far, you don't even know how to get back. You don't even know what to do to get back. And that's where help is available. But you know, one of the things, Gina always say, who said they wanted to grow up and be an addict? People have this assumption that it's a willpower or, you know, you can stop anytime. Heck, no, you can't. You know, that's just like who wanted diabetes or who wants cancer or who wants any of the sicknesses that we see within our country and within our world today. Nobody signs up for that. So I didn't, I, 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 there's no way that you could have told me that I wanted to grow up and be an addict. You know, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be productive. I wanted to have a life. Nobody showed me how because all I saw was people who used. Or, you know, a lot of times people come out of traumatic situations and they're introduced to it and it takes away the trauma. It takes away the thought. You know, like I know, there are so many women who show up at Mary Hall because nobody wanted to help them with their mental health. So they started self-medicating. You know, so many people out there are using as a way of coping with the voices, the depression, the anxiety, the pain that they feel in their physical body. Today, everybody that's using is not using because they don't have nothing else to do. 
You actually have a note to clinicians in your book about sussing out the trauma underneath addiction, and you directly address clinicians by saying, if I'm the addicted person in your care, do not rest until you know where I've been, what has happened to me, where I've been hurt, and therefore how to help me heal. Find the pain I am trying to medicate with this drug or drink or activity. Can you talk, Lucy, about how that approach differs from typical treatment? Absolutely. Again, going back to what I said, nobody wants to be an addict. So again, like I said, with my mom, nobody explained to me what happened. So there was that predisposition of addiction in my family. Secondly, nobody told me or talked to me about the fear as a little girl. I feared. I remember when I first got to treatment, Again, so naive, my, my, I remember one of my counseling sessions was, I told my counselor, I was so afraid I was going to die like my mother and my brothers. That counselor said to me, Lucy, you are going to die one day, but you don't have to die like they did. So that was another fear, layer of fear that I had. And that was such freedom when that man told me that, yeah, you're going to die. We all going to die. You know, that's the reality but you don't have to die like they did from alcoholism, from drug overdoses, you can be free. So let's start peeling back the layers of what Lucy is afraid of, what Lucy has been doing, what Lucy can do. So we can look at all the areas and all the complexities of my life so that I don't have to be the same. I can, you know, it's almost like tear it all down and build it over, over again. You know, and, and again, I don't have to go back to five years old, but I do had to, we do, we did need to find the source of my fear because fear kept me using fear of dying, fear of in, the insecurity that I had about myself. Again, when I tell you I came into recovery, I was 286 pounds and I smoked cigarettes today, by the grace of God, I don't, if you look at my picture, none of that is me today. <laughs> I was able to find the me inside of that body, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what we want to do. We want to help people find who they are. Drugs just mask who we are. So any good clinician needs to be helping me unfold and find who I am. That's what we love to do at Mary Hall. I love the idea that when a woman heals herself, she heals for all the women who came before and all the women who will come after. And that notion really came through in the fact that you named your center after both your mother and your daughter, Mary Hall. So talk about the importance of that. Well, again, you know, it's, it's definitely my before and after, you know, my mom, didn't get the opportunity to have recovery. But my daughter is the beginning of my recovery. I was so afraid that I was going to die and leave her like my mother left me, that I was willing to do anything. So when I was introduced to the opportunity to do something different, I grabbed hold and I, by the grace of God, will never let go. Like he said, hold on to his unchanging hand and I'm never letting go. So I think it's important, you know, and that's why I'd love to celebrate life, you know, celebrate recovery, celebrate my milestones, celebrate those things that are important every day 
even in the turmoil we live in in this world today. I mean, everywhere there's turmoil. There is craziness. We can focus on that and let it be a downward spiral, or we can pray about that and continue to live life on life's terms. You mentioned that you know you were looking for mothers to guide you, and watching you in the film, I see that you have sort of embraced a matriarch role for the women at your center. Do you feel that way? And do you see that as a sort of coming full circle in your recovery? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a lot of times as women, when we come into recovery, there is so much brokenness. There is so much false beliefs that we have about women and and our relationships with one another. There is so much that we've done to, to one another so that it's the kind of thing where I am so grateful that I get to be a role model to other women who need a mother. I'll be your mother. Who need a sister? I'll be your sister. If you need a friend, I'll be your friend. Whatever is needed, just know that you know, it's there and, and, and it's in community. It's in seeing other women who have what you want, you know, and I pray that I can be that for the women that come through the doors of Mary Hall Freedom House. I just want to show them every day what recovery looks like and give them the hope that they will need to do it one day at a time. Uh, I also noticed that you encourage them to celebrate their milestones, too, that you have a graduation event on a regular basis, and you encourage people to share their stories. And talk about that a little bit, about how um, that experience is kind of an eye-opener for people that are in recovery to step up and share their story and offer that connection as, uh, I think you use the word disciple, be a disciple of yeah. How how does that impact? Well, again, you know, one of the things that I think is so important is that we do celebrate. So every, because June is our anniversary month, every uh, first Friday in June, we do graduation. So the women who have come and completed uh, treatment, they get to graduate. They get to do something that a lot of them have never done. And that's complete something. A lot of women, you know, feel like they have failed at so much by the time. And I shouldn't just say women, people that are seeking recovery, people who are in active addiction, by the time they seek recovery, they have lost so much. They have failed. They feel like they have failed so much that recognizing, hey, here's a milestone to celebrate. Look what you've done. That a girl. You know, you get to dress up, walk across the stage, be beautiful for today, share your experience, strength, and hope to that sister who's sitting in the audience that just came in the door like you did. So at every step of your journey, reach back and get somebody else. It gives you strength. It reminds you from whence you've come. It allows you to be grateful for the air that you breathe and the fact that you have now overcome. You know, you, you you introduced yourself and you said you've got nine years. I'm like, I wanted to start clapping and celebrating <laughs> you. Why do you have to celebrate these things? You know it. It, it, it hasn't been a, 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 a piece of cake, but it has been life on life's terms. And it's better 
my worst day in recovery, you know, this might sound cliche, but I'm sure you can agree. My worst day in recovery won't match my best day getting out. Mm-hmm. It just won't. You know, when I think about where I where I left off, there was no more fun in me getting high. Oh, yeah. And it is a really beautiful thing to see those women celebrating themselves and each other and, uh, and moving forward. Let's talk a, a little bit about anonymity. You mentioned this already, but it is important to show what recovery looks like. It's easy for the world to see what addiction looks like because we really can't hide it when we're in so much pain and dysfunction. But then when we go into recovery, there's a sort of perception that it needs to be anonymous and secretive because it's a time of sort of protecting ourselves and tending to ourselves. But then the outcome of that is that people don't get to see what recovery looks like. Um, So I know that you're really dedicated to shattering that stigma and being a voice. Do you think there's a, a way that people know when and if it's right for them to step forward and start recovering out loud or share their story? So in the job interview, you ain't got to tell them that, oh, I live at Mary Hall Freedom House and I'm a person in recovery and I've been clean now. And they go into that. I said, that's not what the interview is about. You know, so in their job readiness programs, they do that help interview and skill and, and role play so that they are equipped. Now, there may come a a point in time where that's important to say, and you'll know that. That's just like in the steps. You will know when it's time to share your experience, strength, and hope. You will know. You're already a light. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a light. And so I know when I need to shine on somebody, you know, or shine in a particular situation because it looks dark. You'll know when. You'll know when. And so you got to use wisdom because you don't want people to use it against you. But the other thing I say, and I say this in the book, is everybody's recovering from something. There's not a person alive that's not recovering from something. We all know what it's like to come back from something difficult. That's why I try to tell the women at Mary Hall, don't go out there and say, I I do not announce myself as Lucy, I'm an addict. Because I'm not an addict. I'm not an addict. I haven't done drugs in 30, over 30 years. I'm a person in recovery. Talk about that. There lies hope. When you talk about I'm an addict, people start holding on to their pocketbook. I'm not an addict. I'm not about to take nothing from you. I don't want anything from you. I'm in recovery. And I bet you when I tell you about my recovery, you're going to, one, say that is awesome. And then you're going to tell me your story. And I don't even care what they're recovering from. Jean, you know that most people will share their story about their husband or about something or how they overcame when this happened. Before you know it, you sit there in a therapy session (laughs) with somebody who needed to share. And they're so grateful that you were honest. You know, so it's all in the way I present it. You know, when I talk about I'm a person in recovery, people want to know what that means. And I get to share that. And that's what I teach the women at Mary Hall. You now get to share what recovery looks like, what it feels like, and you get to offer it to people who you know need it. In your book, you write each chapter from three different voices, the addict's voice, the clinician's voice, and the ally's voice. So can you talk about the importance of approaching recovery from these different perspectives? 
Oh, absolutely. So first to the addict who still suffers, to that person who's still out there suffering, that part of the book is to help them to realize they don't need to keep suffering, that recovery is possible. So it's an it's to encourage and enlighten them on how they can access recovery. So that's the first part is to access recovery. So they are allowed to do that. And then when I speak to the clinician, it is because I am a clinician. I am a clinician at heart. Um, they get to hear some of the lessons learned. And if you're a clinician, like you could be a licensed, you know, a LPC or LMSW or LCSW who've never been in recovery. So I share some of the plight from that lens, a person in recovery who's also a clinician and just kind of saying, hey, here's how we can work this thing together. Because when you're working with people in recovery, they always want to know, are you in recovery? And, and as a clinician, you don't have to be in recovery. Or you can say what I just said. We're all in recovery from something. And so if I'm honest as an LMSW or LPC, we're all in recovery from something. So that's what my share to them is about, you know, how, like you just shared a moment ago from the book, how as a clinician who can say, I feel successful and helpful to my clients is because I know I've checked these things off. And then, of course, to the ally, to that family member, to that friend, to that coworker, whoever it is, we all know somebody who needs recovery. Every person knows somebody who's either in recovery or needs recovery. And so speaking to them about how to do an intervention, speaking to them about how to best address and approach somebody who needs recovery, instead of pointing the finger, because the minute you start pointing the finger at people, they back up and they start defending themselves. But if you say to them how you feel, we teach in that is, you know, I often say to people, you know, when they get, when I walk past admissions and I see a newcomer, I was welcome them to Mary Hall Freedom House. And I'll say, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you ready for recovery, one being you wish you would could go back out that front door and go get another hit. Where you at? And they'll say, well, I'm about a four. And I'll be like, wow, congratulations, a four. Why didn't you say a three? And then they're going to tell me why they said a four. Therein lies their hope. And then I'm going to say to them, so what do you think it's going to take to get to a five? Therein lies their outlook. Because you now get me looking towards, I can go, I can be a five and I can keep moving in the direction to get to that 10, I'm all in, versus turning around and going back. So teaching people the language of recovery and how to ask the right questions, you know, you, you, you ask your loved one instead of saying, you make me sick because you get high every day. Just ask them. So you use something every day. How's that working for you? So it's all the questions that we ask as opposed to accusing people. Because see, I can't make you feel that. I can't. I can't make you feel bad because I'm getting high. But my getting high does have an impact on you. So tell me about that. Keep it in mm. the I statement. I'm wondering where you learned to talk to people in that way. I mean, I love that approach of where are you at and, you know, talking about the hope and, and bringing out that dialogue. Did someone model that for you? Did you stumble upon it along the way? Is it a, is it a technique that the rest of us can learn somewhere? Where did that come from? Oh, absolutely. 
I definitely think from my many years of experience, um, I also know from my many years of experience on the receiving side. To this day, I don't like for nobody to accuse me of something. Ask. Ask me the right question. Um, and also, as the CEO of the organization, you know, I, I think there are many things that we learn um, from many people and you try different things and then you put things together and you're like, now that works. You know, it's one of those things like your mom probably gave you some recipes and and you've got your own flair to it today. You know, it's it's her recipe that you took and made your own. So it's it's gleaming along the way, different techniques and methodologies, but also, you know, different things that you learn along the way that work, you know, and, and I just know that when it comes to motivational interviewing or um, encouraging people or keeping people hopeful, hopeful, that's what the product is, keeping people mm-hmm. hopeful. Mm-hmm. And that's why you call yourself a hope dealer, right? <laughs> believe it, girl, for real, for real. This leads me to my next question. And by the way, I I love that analogy to a a recipe or things that are handed down from the generations. I I love that. That that makes me feel like, oh, yeah, we do. We all absorb these great things. We do. And before you know it, they come out in different places and you'd be like, Oh, that was good. That tastes good. Let's do it again. So your your program has grown from a $650 a month apartment and, and two women to now 24 years later, 250 women and seven locations. So tell me what this past 24 years has taught you, where has it been completely different than you expected and how has it changed your perspective? Hmm. Uh, the first part of that question, what has it taught me to live one day at a time? That is something, Jean, I think was the best gift I ever got in recovery because I remember Mr. D, God rest his soul, the guy who gave me the money to start Mary Hall. He was a wealthy gentleman. And he said to me, Lucy, I wish I knew how to live a day at a time. I said, well, that's all you get. You know, he he gave me a lot of wisdom and I, I shared mine at the time with him. But the reality of it is we only get one day. So if whatever I can do in this day is what I need to focus on. And then two, um, I also believe that there's an opportunity in every day. There are opportunities to do the right thing, to make yourself and others better, and to reach somebody who needs to be encouraged. I love to encourage people. When, you know, even I I was out for a bike ride earlier and I saw a fruit and vegetable stand. I stopped there and the woman, you know, she, she probably, her and I would become the best of friends by no stretch of the imagination, but she wasn't smiling. And so right away, but you're on the receiving side. You want me to buy something here. And I stopped because I want to buy something here, but we've got to change your outlook. And I don't know what happened in her life today. So I can't go in there saying I'm getting ready to be her clinician and fix her, but I can in this interaction, make sure it's a win-win. And for me, I need a smile. And so I found something to compliment her on. I found something that we can talk about, like, you know, her produce. And I asked her name and I, you know, 
you can always stir it so that it comes out. Everybody wins. You know, I mean, I'm a hugger and this whole pandemic doesn't allow me to do a lot of that. But nonetheless, in my lifetime, every woman who walks through the door, I want to hug them. To this day, I still do a group every Monday morning at Mary Hall Freedom House. I remember early on, somebody told me, Lucy, one day you're going to grow so big that you won't be able to do that Monday group. And I said to them, well, then I don't think I want to grow that big. I don't ever want to be that big that I don't remember where I've come from or I can't say hello and love the person who just walked through the door. Don't ever want to get there. So it's important to keep yourself right-sized, keep yourself humble, keep yourself knowledgeable about that which you desire. I desire love and I desire community. That's another point that I think a lot of people use because they don't have connection and community. I love the fact that in 2020, Mary Hall Freedom House offers a community and connection to many, many, many women who otherwise would not feel connected. I could listen to you all day. (laughs) You make me feel like I can do anything. Uh You can, you can, like I said, you, you know, I enjoy talking to you because you just kind of put it out there and very peaceful. I mean, you are just a very peaceful person. I imagine that being around you, it's just like, no need to rush about it. Just take it in and enjoy the moment and let life come. I'm peaceful when, I, when I'm when i on the bubble hour because I know that we're going to have a heart-to-heart conversation. I'd have to say out there awesome. in the world where everyone wears emotional armor and... Um, and uh, things aren't quite as straightforward. I'm much more anxious. (laughs) Uh, And I just think that's where self-care comes in. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like literally right before uh, we hopped on, uh, I went for a bike ride so that I didn't, so I can release all of that. I went for a nice bike ride. There's certain things that I've developed in my recovery that I won't let go of. I won't let go of in the morning when I get up at home in my garage. I have an elliptical machine. My Bible is on it. There's certain things that I don't give up. I do it daily. It's what worked for me these past 30 years, and I won't ever stop doing it. I tell the women, don't figure out what you need. And I tell people in recovery, not just the women, figure out what you need to be successful and never stop doing Mm. it. Yeah. Well, tell us how uh, people can learn more about Mary Hall Freedom House, as well as your book, Hope Dealer, and the film Hope Village. Absolutely. So if you want to know more about Mary Hall Freedom House, you can definitely go to maryhallfreedomhouse.org or mhfh.org, and therein lies your opportunity to find out more about what we do at Mary Hall Freedom House, which is in Georgia and uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And I want to encourage you, if you want to get the movie Hope Hope Village and the book Hope Dealer, you can definitely go to hopedealer.org. And we would love to have you join our podcast or join our uh, movie. You can definitely get hold of all of that. Totally, totally would love to have you join us in that. And so again, Hope Dealer and Hope Village. 
Wonderful. Lucy Hall, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your service and thank you for your open heart. Glad to spend time with you. Oh, thank you. And I'm honored to have spent time with you as well, Jean. And you got to let me know when it airs so that I can stay, I can listen to it. But thank you so much. God bless you and keep you, girl. You as well. Just do life one day at a time. You as well. And listeners, thank you for listening. If you have a message that you want to get to Lucy, you can always send it to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will forward it on to her. Otherwise, you'll find her at maryhallfreedomhouse.org. And I think you're on Facebook as well. With yes, Hope I Village. am. You can definitely, my Facebook and Instagram is Lucy Hall. Wonderful. So you can definitely find me there. Well, thank you for a great hour. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. Just want to be free from the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride Turn the light on Just want to be free from power. Oh, yes, head on. You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession every year. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror. And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I'm old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you miss head on Just want to be free.